Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Borderlands session uh, in the month of March 2021. This is Borderlands team from Aberdeen Methodist in Aberdeen, Scotland. Today's session is going to be sharing and leading the conversation with us, Reverend Toffer Endress, with the topic Stairway to Heaven Christian Spatial Imaginations and the Production of Disabilities. Reverend Toffer is an ordained minister from the Disciples of Christ. He's tutor at Aberdeen University, where at the same time it's PhD candidate in the School of Divinity. Let us hear from Reverend Toffer today and let us enjoy the conversation. Welcome everyone. And if you want to join our next live conversation, you can find us as Aberdeen Methodist on social media. The next Borderlands session is the 25th of May. Let us listen from Reverend Toffer and let us reflect together from Borderlands conversations between the church and the city. Sam and James for the introductions. Um, I think Marty may have misled you all. I am by no means a polymath, though he is accurate that I am trying to blend together several different fields. Hopefully then, uh, because I'm using language that is uh, mutually unfamiliar to each of the separate fields, I've learned how to explain myself a bit better and not just use jargon. Um, much of my work comes from uh, history and human geography, which are not typically fields featured in theological works. Um, so what we'll talk about tonight in a broad overview is a bit of the historical shift between the leprosariums of Europe and leprosarium, uh, you can think of leper house or leper colony, uh, those infected with leprosy and the shift between those and the introduction of madhouses, um, so named because they housed people who were mad or uh, insane. So we'll, we'll look at that broad shift and we'll use that shift to explain a bit about uh, what I talk, uh, what I mean when I talk about uh, spatial imagination and spatial logics. Um, so I'll give a, a two examples about a uh, sort of ancient spatial logic, and then we'll do uh, the, sw the switch and the spatial logic that emerged uh, a bit later on in the, the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, and into modernity. And we'll conclude with some open-ended questions about where we think we are now as a church uh, with how we view space and, and how that functions. Uh, and hopefully by going through this, we'll feel more than capable of calling ourselves co-researchers on this, uh, because I do fully believe that everyone who is in the church is, is actively building that church and participating in these conversations, whether they know it or not. Um, I'll also say I do manuscript everything I write, uh, partly for my own need and partly because it can be a, a tool for access. So if anyone would require um, or, or would just find it helpful to have these words written down in front of you, um, you can, I believe, message Marty and Marty can forward an email that I just sent him, um, or you can get it after the fact. So to begin, England, Scotland, 
at a time when I believe there was a border, uh, though I'm a bit iffy on my UK history, the 1100s um, in Scotland and England combined, there were approximately 220 houses for lepers for a population of just 1.5 million people. And thus there was a house for approximately every 6,800 people on the island. But by 1300, many of those houses were closing or being repurposed for the more general poor and destitute. On the continent, going from approximately 19,000 leprosariums spread throughout Christendom in the high Middle Ages to nearly none within 300 years is a vast shift in the spatial practices of a city. What had been entrenched in the social imagination as a place that you would pass by, a place that was uh, constitutive of the city, was emptied out and the funds and materials were sent to hospitals for the poor. So from a geographer's perspective, this must have had a massive impact on how people went about their day how they thought about their charity, maybe the paths that they chose to walk, what they feared and what they didn't fear, and how they read scripture. It's important to note that at this time, as was the case stretching back arguably to the very first hospital, which was built by St. Basil the Great, uh, hospitals were essentially just large storehouses for sick and destitute, and sometimes travelers and pilgrims often without any real focus on healing or recovery. In fact, hospitals were typically seen more as a vector of disease spread rather than a place of cure. Likewise, Foucault notes that the leprosarium was not designed to eliminate leprosy, but rather to fix it to an appropriate distance away from the polis. Leprosy itself was a constant reminder to the people of God's power, anger, and grace all in one. The power of God to control both the cosmos and humans' relation to it. The anger of God for human sinful nature and the grace of God manifest through the love and care of those providing charitable respite. Lepers bore witness to God, giving them a critical place within the wider body and within the civic order. But this position was ultimately not dependent on the continued physical presence of lepers themselves. The mere idea and memory of leprosy would be sufficient for this task. To quote Foucault, what doubtless remained longer than leprosy and would persist when the Lazar houses or leprosariums had been empty for years were the values and images attached to the figure of the leper as well as the meaning of his exclusion, the social importance of that insistent and fearful figure, which was not driven off without first being inscribed within a sacred circle. So it is the exclusion of the leper, which is ironically public and central to the life of the town, which held meaning. Now, similarly, in the Hebrew Bible, we find that the temple, now alongside its temporal prescriptions, can be seen as a microcosm of the ancient Hebrew cosmos. The presence of God is located at a center, 
around which humans can circulate at various social, ethical, and physical distances. This center is thus an ethical high ground, the pinnacle at which God uh, who reigns in the heavens above intersects with humans who dwells below. In the pre-temple area or era, those with disabilities, including notably leprosy, are commanded to wait outside of the camp while the unblemished priests may enter the inner tents housing the Ark of the Covenant. After Solomon, these, category, these same categories fix the maximal distances one may inhabit concerning the inner sanctuaries of the temple. Again, the ethical high ground. Perhaps here, it's helpful for us to picture a pyramid. At the top, at the point, in the center, you have the temple and the unblemished priests, while the lepers and the unclean sit at the distant and lowly base. So what can we learn from this practice of exclusion, which is again, not exclusion how we might think of it, but uh, as not exclusion as removal, but as some form of intentional distancing. So in my research, my task is to look for the ways in which spatial imaginations shape the construction of disabilities. In general, I find relationships between disabilities and space rest in how the imagination of space influences what we believe about the users of space and the creator of space. In other words, our spatial practices create our disabilities, but only because our spatial practices are in relation with our imaging of God, our ideas about metaphysics, our spatial metaphors like using pyramids and above below categories and our conception of how God relates to space. To make this even more clear, consider the emergence some two or three centuries after the closure of leprosariums, of madhouses. In the mid 16th century to the mid 17th century, European cities made dramatic shifts between either rounding up their indigent poor to be used as free labor for civic expansion, like the uh, local slaves used to build the sewers of Paris, uh, between that and direct expulsion from the city gates under threat of death, and then back again. According to Chapman, Carey, and Ben Moshi, these dramatic vacillations are made possible in part due to the growing secularization of the world, as well as in part due to industrialization both of which decrease the social, economic, political, and imaginative powers of the church. Religious places of seclusion, namely monasteries, convents, and hospitals, had long played a role in confining those who stood outside of the accepted moral and social order, with some even serving directly as prisons, as the monastery in particular lost power and numbers other forms of confinement became necessary for these European cities, as was in the case of Paris. This secularization emerged in line with a scientific reading of the world and can be marked by any number of major events. In my thesis, because of my focus on space, I choose to follow Copernicus's rediscovery of a heliocentric cosmos, uh, a universe 
in which the sun is the center with the planets rotating around rather than the earth. An alternate example could be found in someone like Willie James Jennings uh, work, locating a similar shift in European discovery of the Americas. Uh, subsequently, discovering this new continent with new people who were unrecorded in the Bible uh, led to uh, a rejection of the traditional doctrines of God in favor of a creatio continua, which leads in effect to the science of race. This means instead of out of nothing God created, uh, that humans were able to continue the process of creation, forming new races and new categories, uh, depending on what served their political purposes. His work is absolutely fantastic. Uh, highly recommend Willie James Jennings to everyone. But we're talking Galileo, not race. Uh, so Copernicus, and just important, as importantly, Galileo's telescope, uh, which opened the discovery of Copernicus to the layman, because they could now verify with their own eyes what Copernicus was uh, seeing in his math. Both of these discoveries allowed the world to participate in a massive shift in spatial logics. The whole notion of God above, creation below, would no longer suffice in a universe where the earth was no longer the center. The Copernican turn and the epistemological turn to science or the foundation of science as the, the foundation for knowing, uh, which followed that Copernican turn, opened the world to a new center periphery logic. So instead of the above below, you now have center periphery. As secularization grew, the spatial imagination needed to fill the vacuum left by God, who no longer controlled the earth from above. Uh, well, the spatial just imagination just needed to fill that vacuum. So in madhouses, what we find are intersections of economics, medicine, stigma, and institutionalis institutionalism, which coalesce and highlight the outworking of this new spatial imagination. The center in this case can be conceptual, but it can also be physically constructed. And we can recreate this by looking into the historic order of cities. We can look at the way cities grew and look at the way that state powers were centralized to reign over daily life. As these institutions like the madhouse began to emerge in the late 16th century, the rich were often quick to pay off coroners to prevent their family members from being given lunacy as their cause of death, while the poor and socially marginal had no such protection or likely social standing to lose. But by the end of the 18th century, lunacy and madness were ingrained in the social imagination to the point where it touched even the most privileged. Now there's an ironic double inversion here that I'd like to address before we ultimately move on to see how this is relevant to the church today. The leper, lowly in status in this top-down spatial imaginary, was held at arm's length in a very public way, excluded and expelled, but without being hidden. They exposed an aspect of God and therefore were an important part of the social fabric. The insane were conversely brought inward, confined and hidden in their center periphery spatial imagination. They exposed a shame, 
and thus were ostensibly not made to be public. But the leper was truly socially isolated, while the insane were actually made into a spectacle for jeering and paying crowds. Now, all of this work is set with a wider genealogy, which acknowledges that madhouses eventually specialized into schools for feeble-minded children, prisons, jails, care homes, psychiatric wards, and other modern institutions. As these differentiated and moved to new spaces, new practices emerged, which caused further separations into increasingly specialized groupings. Now, what I hope we're taking away from all of this is that spatial practices and imaginations are in relation to one another. We cannot envision a world in which leper colonies continue, at least not a world that we recognize, perhaps in areas that are, uh, to use a colonizing term, pre-scientific, might we find these uh, leprosariums. But perhaps we can still imagine a world of madhouses, in part because this is still a world of madhouses, although we call them by new names. So why is that important for theology and what does that mean for the church? How has the spatial imaginary shifted and how has that impacted our practices of exclusion and confinement? In following the genealogy I set forth in my thesis, I find that we now live in a postmodern spatiality today. By this, I mean that rather than a singular above below relation or one center marginal or periphery relation, even uh, multiple centers and marginal positions, uh, we no longer live in a world that recognizes those as the fundamental spatial logic that guides our lives. Rather, we no longer live with any relation to a singular notion of having a center or an above at all. All aspects of space in this postmodern view are essentially relativistic. This follows someone like Einstein, who unseats Newton in a very similar way that Copernicus and Galileo unseated the ancients. There is conceptually no fixed distance, only relative distance. Now, this is a highly individual-focused spatial concept. All that matters is me and what's distant from me rather than what am I distant to and what center am I distant from? So we might have some theological or even psychological cause to critique this, but I think it plays out quite strongly in our switch to virtual church as we've seen over this pandemic. So what in this era of COVID-19 does church space look like now? What is spatial practice for the church in 2021? Our buildings sit emptier than usual, while the large churches with significant production capacities enjoy growth at the expense of small churches with low budget and aging populations. As Tim Gorringe notes, the rise of car culture initially nearly destroyed the parish system by making the world seemingly hyper accessible. You can go anywhere at any time because you can drive there. Even more so now, the internet has broken any real sense of distance in terms of church attendance. Now, in some ways, this might be good. For instance, having uh, a virtual meeting that includes people from Aberdeen as well as Houston. 
In others, however, it limits the ability of the church to make any claims on liturgy as effective outside of its prescribed hour. No longer does gathering at a specific site challenge us to think about the homes we pass on our way into the building, or allow us to open neighborhood cafes, or allow a minister to simply go door to door meeting folks. Now the interior of the church building is the pure focus, disembodied and displaced from the social fabric around it. Even this perpetuates exclusion and confinement. The excluded class is still mapped onto pre-existing categorizations of identity. According to Gaventa and Litzinger, the elderly, poor, and disabled are still the three least likely to have access to virtual services, just as they were the least likely to have access to in-person services. Now, this is not to say that they were the least likely to attend, but the comparative lack of mobility supports available to them were often hidden by the eldest generation's attendance numbers. Now with technology posing as a means to open the church to everyone everywhere, the continued exclusion of disabled people shows that disabled people are the permanently external objects, usually of charity, in very similar ways to the expulsion of lepers. Our postmodern individualism is perhaps not so distinct from the above below hierarchical thought from the past, as Samuel Toads and Elizabeth Barnes have noted. Likewise, our theological conceptions of a perceived link between sin and disability, a fact sadly well-documented by social research and through evidence given by disabled Christians who feel that condemning weight of such a belief very personally, that link confines disabled bodies into an ethical prison operationalizing disabled bodies for a, for a moral voyeurism, not unlike the good church folks who spent their Saturdays paying for the right to look at the naked and insane folks of the asylum being treated like animals in 17th century London. Now, sadly, I offer no real conclusion here. There is no quick fix. We exclude people with disabilities in our churches and even in the supposed opening of virtual space, do so. We can find people in structures of disabledist theology, perhaps accounting for space from a better theological vantage point will open us up to the possibility of a new spatial practice, a new spatial imagination of spatial logic, which is more open to the presence of the disability community and all of the spatial practices that their bodies bring with them. Certainly without addressing these issues, our pursuit of liturgy, missiology, and evangelism, and service to the world will remain incomplete. Thank you.